0: Finding contentment seemed so much easier when I was a child. I don't know if anyone can relate. Let me just play with my Batman and my Spider-Man action figures, and I'll be set for the whole day. As a kid, I think we find contentment a lot easier than we find as adults. We enjoy just being with family, with playing in the backyard, letting our imaginations run wild. Looking back on my childhood, I don't ever remember occupying myself, my mind with what the future holds, what tomorrow is going to bring. I don't think as a child I was concerned about being successful and ambitious. I didn't have the fear of missing out as a child. I don't remember having selfish ambitions. I was easily contented. And then jump forward to college... Where I had tremendous fear of missing out, where I needed to be in a relationship or to have friends to feel a sense of contentment. I was occupied by my desire for a successful career, that I would be a financial analyst on Wall Street, that when I graduate and I get a job, then I'll be content. When I get married, then I'll be content and then jump forward again, and you get your first job. I got my first job, and the reality of working eight to five really just crushes your soul. (laughs) Just having to go into the office five days a week. Where did all the freedom go? And then you're concerned about, I need to make more money. I need a promotion, I need a pay raise. I'm the lowest on the totem pole right now. I'll be content when I get a promotion. I'll be content when I get a pay raise. And then we grind, and we work hard, and months, years go by. You get a promotion, you get that pay raise, and great, you're making more money now, but now you have more responsibility, more stress. And you still have the fear of missing out. You see Instagram feeds, and you see friends, and they're still doing really cool stuff. So you still have the fear of missing out. You're discontent with life. And all of a sudden, you start to, to wish, I wish I was back in college. I didn't have a dime in my name, but at least I had freedom. At least I had free time. We started thinking about childhood, and we experienced nostalgia. We said, man, I wish I could keep content like I was when I was a kid. This is a story for many of us, a story for me. And we all long to be content. But we struggle to find any sort of resemblance of contentment in our life. So today we're going to talk about finding rest, finding contentment. Today we're going to see how hoping in the Lord is the starting point for experiencing contentment in life and contentment in the presence of God. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm 131. That's where we're going to be today, and this is a a very short psalm. It's just three verses. But it's short and it's sweet and it packs a punch for us. And our big truth for today is simple: to learn contentment, hope in the Lord. So, a ha- Psalm one hundred and thirty-one, a song of ascent, of David. O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up; my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Again, our big truth is to learn contentment, hope in the Lord. And when speaking about this psalm, Charles Spurgeon said, It is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. It speaks of a young child, but it contains the experience of a man in Christ. So today I want to show you that hope in the Lord is the basis for learning how to be content, for learning how to rest in God. If you look at verse 3, again, it says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. And we're going to examine this in more detail later, but here, David is calling Israel to hope in the Lord. I believe he does this because his own hope in the Lord is what enables him to write verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2 are all about his humility, his lack of pride his lack of needing to be in control of all things at all times it's about his calm and his quiet soul about his contentments the reason david calls israel to hope in the lord is because that is what it takes to be content verse three is key to understanding verses one and two David can sing about his rest and contentment because of his hope in the Lord. Hope fuels contentment. But what is hope? When we use the word hope today, it's usually associated with uncertainty. I hope the CSU Rams are going to win. The biblical understanding paints a different picture. John Piper defines hope like this. He says, biblical hope is a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. When the Bible speaks about hope, it means to have a full confidence, a full trust, a full expectation. And so if you were to impose the biblical meaning of hope onto how we use it today, and you said, I hope the CSU Rams are going to win, well, you would expect You would know for a fact that they were going to win. But we obviously can't do that. (laughs) Biblical hope is a trust that is not misplaced. It's not just hoping and wanting for something good to happen. It's an eager expectation, a confidence in something that will assuredly happen. So David is saying that he trusts in the Lord. He is assured of his faithfulness, his goodness, his love, his justice, his kindness, his mercy. David has a confidence that salvation comes from God. And so I want to argue today that when we hope in the Lord, we can begin to be content. So what's contentment then? Well, if you look up in a dictionary, you would see that Contentment is a state of happiness and satisfaction. And that is an outcome of contentment, but biblical contentment means more. Biblical contentment derives its peace and satisfaction from God. Contentment is the quiet soul that rests in God's presence. So with that as an overview, and Definition and a few key words. We're going to go ahead and jump into our first big idea, our first main point for today, which is this: a hope in the Lord humbles the hearts. A hope in the Lord humbles the hearts, and we see that the title of Psalm 131 is a song of ascents of David. So David is the composer, and the song of ascents is a group of psalms that starts in Psalm 120 and it goes through with Psalm 134. And Jerusalem was a city on a hill. And so each year, when Jews would travel to Jerusalem to observe festivals, they would journey up the hill. And it was believed that as they journeyed up the hill to Jerusalem, they would sing these psalms. They would sing these psalms of ascent. In verse 1, David says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. David is showing... A posture of humility. He is not elevating himself above the Lord. A heart that is lifted up and eyes that are raised too high are expressions of pride and arrogance. Eyes that are raised up are eyes that are looking down their nose at others. One commentator says that humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. David's heart is not proud, and his eyes are not haughty. And the heart, in the Old Testament, represents the inner person. It's the seat or the source of emotion, of will, of intellect, of conscience, of passion, of desire. So David is expressing that his whole being is in a state of lowliness. His whole being is in a state of humility. And the Bible often speaks of the sin of pride and the the godly virtue of humility. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Or in Proverbs 16, verse 5, it says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. David has learned to trust God with his whole life. He hopes in the Lord for salvation, for deliverance, in his faithfulness, his power, his might. And David sees himself in light of a holy God. So this hope, and this faith, and this honest assessment of himself... Leads David to humble his heart before the Lord and to renounce pride. All that he is is because of the grace of God. Let's look at the second half of verse 1. It says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. In other words, David does not allow himself to be consumed by lofty things. He doesn't stress out about the things that are outside of his control. David understands his place as a mere mortal who can't fully know why everything happens the way it happens, who can't fix every situation. No, he trusts the Lord. He's content in him. And I think this passage speaks into our culture today. How often do we get consumed by things that are going on in the world, by things that are outside of our control. News headlines cause us stress and worry and anxiety. Politics, the midterm elections, inflation, gas prices, war, threats of nuclear war, perverse sexuality being taught in our schools to our kids, job layoffs. Or perhaps you get saddened and your mind is consumed by poverty, by homelessness, by the conditions of third world countries, by abortion, by the disabled, by the marginalized. And many of these things are good to care about and are a great investment of of your time and energy. But what David is saying here is that I do not allow myself I do not allow my soul to be weighed down by things that are outside my control and cause me not to have rest in the Lord. David does not allow these things to occupy his mind and force him to question God and to beat his fists and say, Why, God? But rather, David frees his minds from the things that are outside his control and he rests in the presence of the Lord. During Job's life, he was not content with this. He occupied his mind with things outside of his control. Job demanded to know things from God, things that were beyond his finite limitations. And at the end of the book of Job, he recognized that he had elevated himself above the Lord. He recognized his pride, and he repents. And so we read in Job chapter 42... Verses 1 through 6 says this. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Here, Job is saying, I spoke and I demanded things from God, things that were beyond me. I should not have done that. I should not have occupied myself with such things. A related way that we occupy our minds with things that are too great for us is in regards to wanting to know what the future holds for our lives. What is God's will for my life? Right? We've all asked ourselves these questions. And these questions can creep into our minds and they can get a foothold. And then we can't shake it. We can't get it out of our minds. It's taken residence in our minds. And I think David to combat this, he understood the difference between the two wills of God. And that enabled him to say, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. you may say, wait, what are the two wills of God? I'm glad you asked, let me explain. Because they're really helpful in giving us categories for how to navigate the scriptures and how to navigate life with more humility, with more confidence, and with more trust in the Lord. So, There are at least two meanings for the will of God in the Bible. College students will know this. We talked about this a couple months ago. The secret will of God and the revealed will of God. And this can be seen clearest in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. This is what Deuteronomy says. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So God's secret will includes all of God's decrees, all of his decisions by which he rules and governs the universe. We cannot and we do not know the secret will of God. Those things belong to him and to him alone. Moment by moment, God is bringing about all things according to his counsel and his purposes. So that's God's secret will. God's revealed will gives Christians a moral code of conduct to follow. And God makes this will plain to us through his word. As we show obedience to the scriptures, we are following God's revealed will for our lives. And it's here where we can also disobey God's will. We can disobey God's revealed will. Simply put, God's revealed will is his instructions to us in the Bible to pursue holiness, to pursue godliness, But many of us have gone astray by occupying ourselves, trying to determine what the will of God is for my life. And if someone is trying to unveil God's secret will, well, they've missed following God's revealed will. We should not seek the things that belong to the Lord. And yet we can all fall into the cycle of wanting to know what the future holds for me, I mean, it could be an earnest desire, a genuine desire. Lord, help me to make the right decision, to choose the right path. And we often wish that God would just jump out and tell us, choose this, go that way, choose this person, pick that job. When we can't discern the will of God, we often get frustrated. And we may even be doing all the things right. Praying, fasting, seeking counsel from others, and yet we still don't get an answer. Does he want me to date this person? Does he want me to marry this person? Does he want me to move? Does he want our family to move? Does he want us to be a part of a church plant? Does he want us to go to Overland Durango? Does he want me to change majors? Does he want me to change careers? Does he want me to change jobs and and pursue this other job because I don't like my job and, and maybe this job has more money and I can provide better for my family or is he telling me that I should just stay put in my job right now and learn to trust him and learn to be content in this situation when God doesn't seem to answer we get upset and when we do that we are elevating ourselves above God and we are demanding from him what is too great and too marvelous for us Rather, we ought to simply trust His secret will for our lives while striving to be obedient to His revealed will. When we do this, we're actually following the will of God for our lives. And when you do this, you're going to find that making decisions is a whole lot easier and having peace and confidence in your decisions is also a whole lot easier. David has not occupied his mind with trying to know the secret will of God. Rather, David has chosen to place his hope and his trust in the Lord and to be obedient, to follow his revealed will. He trusts in the faithfulness of God. He believes in God's unchanging character. He trusts that the Lord is sovereign and he is ruling and reigning. He recognizes his lowly estate before the Lord. Therefore, he does not occupy his mind with matters and concerns of the world. No, God is on his throne. He is reigning and and ruling eternally, causing all things to happen according to his plan and his purpose. And captivated by this reality, David's mind is free from concern, and he can rest in the presence of the Lord. Let's move on to our next big idea. Our second big idea is this. A hope in the Lord stills the soul. A hope in the Lord stills the soul. Go ahead and read verse 2 again. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Here we see David actively calming his soul. Notice that this isn't passive. The platitude, let go and let God, doesn't really have a place here, does it? The Lord does not just create a calmness and put it in David, and he just sits back and lets it happen. No, David is active in his pursuit of contentment. And often we can land on either end of this extreme where on one hand we say, God is sovereign over every little thing, therefore he doesn't need me, I can just sit back. If he wants to make it happen, he's gonna make it happen. That's one side. The other side is, The people who say, you know, God helps those who help themselves. Therefore I gotta work, I gotta grind, I gotta like take control of my outcomes, take control of my life. It's all on me. And sure, there's like a glimmer of truth in in both of those, but by and large, they're contrary to what the scriptures tells us. It is true that God is sovereign over every little detail in the universe. Every little detail. He is sovereign over it. And it's also true that God tells us to make the best use of time, to work, to be active in pursuing holiness and godliness, to live out the great commission. These two things are compatible. We are to live according to God's revealed will while trusting in his secret will. And I believe that, that David's hope in the Lord enabled him To quiet his soul, to still his soul. He knows that the Lord is sovereign, that he redeems his people, that he loves his people. This hope makes way for David to say, I can calm and quiet my soul. I can do it. I can tell my soul to be still in the Lord's presence. He's actively making his soul be calm and quiet. And then he goes on and he compares his state of being to that of a weaned child with its mother. A child that has not yet been weaned is is hungry. Uh, It's not simply content just resting in his mother's arms. No, he wants and demands food. He's unsettled until he is satisfied. But a child that has been weaned no longer is tossing about trying to get food, but rather a weaned child can simply just be in the presence of his mother. One commentator said, In contrast to the nursing child who needs the mother to satisfy her biological requirement for nourishment, the weaned child chooses to lean on the mother because of love and delight in her. By this striking image, the psalmist, David, indicates that he refused to let his drive for greatness steal his satisfaction in drawing close to the Lord. You see, a weaned child resting in his mother's arms is a contented child not a restless child. David is not demanding anything from God. David has calmed and he's quieted his soul, and now he can rest in the Lord. His soul has been stilled. He finds peace resting in God's presence. Does David's description of his rest and peace and contentment in the Lord describe you? It often doesn't describe me. It often does not describe me. I find it so challenging to simply sit and rest and to be still and to be content in the presence of the Lord. And our culture is one where stillness and calmness and quietness is so rare. We don't like silence. We don't like it. We like to relax, but we don't like to rest. We don't know how to be content in God's presence. How often can we spend an hour alone in prayer, in silence before the Lord? How easily interruptible is our prayer life? How often can you just sit there with no distractions, in silence, and just be content to be with the Lord? I believe that one of the reasons we struggle with rest is because there are obstacles preventing us from, from hoping in the Lord and there are obstacles preventing us from finding time and space to actively calm and quiet our souls. And I'm convinced that one of the chief culprits is our cell phones. Our phones have the power to cause our hope to waver. They persuade us to hope in the things of this world rather than in the Lord. And our phones cause us to occupy our minds with so much stuff that there's no room for quietness. There's no room for calmness. Our phones and devices have made it so that everything is always on demand 24 hours a day. There is virtually no second of your day that you can't be interrupted. In many ways, I think that we have become slaves to technology slaves to our devices. For most people, checking their phone is the first thing they do when they wake up, and it's the last thing they do when they go to sleep. Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, ESPN, Fancy Football, political commentary, Gmail, Outlook, Spotify, Apple Music, Google Music, various podcasts, texting, all of these things vie for your attention all day long. They demand it. So which, which app is it for you? For me, it's email. I check my email constantly. It's podcasts. I can rarely do anything without listening to a podcast in the background. And I always do it on two times speed because I think that's more productive I'm not getting anything out of it, but at least I can say I listened to it. And ironically, one, one podcast I was listening to noted that social media feeds are feeding us, right? We are constantly being fed, constantly scrolling. And this podcast commentator compared the way that we feed on social media to the way horses feed with a slot bag on. It's a constant, except we are feeding on videos, and stories, and and photos, and images, and headlines. Years ago, uh, before I was a Christian, uh, I remember finding this article, and it was on Checking Your Phones. I thought it was really good, and so I shared it on Facebook. So this week I went, and I found that article. I dug back through Facebook, and I found it. And it it was good. Here's, Here's a few quotes from the article. Checking your phone forces you to be reactive rather than proactive. It creates pressure to respond to texts and emails when other people want you to. Checking your phone fills you with that frenetic, compulsive feeling that you might be missing out. Checking your phone tricks you with the trivial it fools you into thinking that news and updates from the virtual world are more important than what's right in front of you in the actual world right now. And so I shared this and I commented on it. Remember, I'm not yet a Christian at this time, and here's what I said. I said, we need more calming influences in our lives, and I believe that will lead to more productivity and happiness. How right I was that we do need more calming influences in our lives but how wrong I was that the outcome is meant for our productivity and our happiness. The outcome ought to be rest in the Lord, contentment in the Lord. And then sure, happiness and productivity might come as a result of that, but the the goal ought to be to rest in the Lord. And most phones nowadays have features where you can see how much time you are spending on your phone every day. And on which app and there's another telling metric tells you how many pickups you have a day and a pickup essentially how many times you take your phone you pick it up and you check it. one study found that we spend on average three hours and 15 minutes a day on our phones And that's a conservative estimate and quick math says that, that equals 50 days in a year we spend 50 days of our year buried in our cell phones. No wonder we can't find contentment in no, we don't give ourselves any time to. And this one was convicting for me. On average, we pick up and check our phones 58 times per day, 58. And 70% of those 58 times, we are on our phone for under two minutes. That's a lot of needlessly checking our phones but we compulsively check it. I compulsively check it. My average was way higher than that. This was convicting for me. Oh, how difficult is it for us to sit and to be still? I challenge you, next time you pull up to a red light, don't check your phone. Next time you're waiting in line, don't pull out your phone. Challenge yourself to still your soul and be in the presence of God. Madison and I and a couple friends went to dinner this week. We went to Oregano's. It's a, it's a great little Italian place here in town. And um, there was a young lady who came in and sat in the booth next to us. She was probably late 20s, early 30s. And she was by herself. And at first I was like, hey, good for you. Coming in, eating by yourself. It's like a stigma against that, so good for you. But then I kind of observed her at the corner of my eye and the entire time she was there, she was just buried in her phone, only looking up to tell the waiter what she wanted and then back down in her phone. And this is just indicative of our culture, that we can't sit still. We can't be calm. We can't be quiet. We need distractions. We struggle so much to find rest in the Lord. Constantly picking up and, and checking notifications and never-endingly scrolling the feeds isn't doing us any good many times, it's actually an escape. It's a way to uh, skirt reality, to to deflect, to help alleviate the stress or the anxiety or the boredom of the day. Don't get me wrong, though. Cell phones obviously have great benefit. We stay connected with friends and family. We can enjoy edifying contents. And there's great safety features built into our phones. But Peter Parker's Uncle Ben once said, with great power comes great responsibility. It's cheesy, but it's true. So I'm not going to go into all of the ways that you can practically reduce your time on your phone. I share these statistics because I want to highlight how common it is for us to occupy ourselves with things that are too great and too marvelous for us, and how hard it is for us to find a time to be quiet and still before God. And so if you have felt some of this describe you, I just encourage you to, to take some practical steps to reduce your dependence on your phone. But also let's let's get to the heart of the matter here. When along with David, you start placing your hope in the Lord daily, you will begin to learn to be content and how to still your soul in God's presence. You can rest in the presence of God and not feel the need to distract and to numb yourself by the things of this world. My wife, Madison, hasn't had social media for a couple of years. Uh, and she, she often says how, how freeing that is. But recently, in the last month or two, she also removed all entertainment-related apps from her phone. And a few weeks later, she had a really tough week. Uh, it was a really tough week emotionally. And things had come to the surface that she had probably suppressed and buried. And she told me that she believes these things had surfaced because she removed the apps from her phone and allowed her time to think and to reflect and for these things to surface. She wasn't just skirting reality. She had time to, to process these things and to seek the Lord. Had she been emotionally known by her phone, these feelings and these experiences may not have surfaced. It was a good thing. It was healthy. So what escapes do do you have in your daily rhythms of life that you're not allowing your time solitude with the Lord? Overland Church, hope in the Lord. That is the key to contentment. Know that he is sovereign and faithful and good and loving and worthy of your whole life. Hope in his promises. David desired nothing more than to draw near to the Lord like a child with his mother. Wean yourself from distractions, from dependence on your phone, from worrying about the things that are outside of your control, and draw near to the Lord. David was able to master his soul and silence it in the Lord's presence because of his his steady and sure hope. Overland Church, still your soul, draw near to the Lord, and find rest. Let's move to our last big idea, our third big idea for the day. This is the shortest one. It's this Hope in the Lord Jesus. And find rest for your soul. In verse 3 says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. David calls Israel to the same hope that he has humility, contentment, rest can only be achieved through a hope that is fixed in God. And David's humility is even seen in this verse as he shifts the attention off of himself and on to Israel. David wants Israel, what it, what it feels like, to rest in God's presence. You see, David had many ups and downs in his life. There were seasons where David was obedient to the Lord, and then there were seasons where he followed his own fleshly desires and appetites, Right? There's times when David was a good role model and in times when he was not a good role model. In this psalm in particular, it does highlight David's godly characteristics. But there is still one who came after David who embodies this psalm more fully. King David was a shadow of a greater king yet to come. David was a foreshadowing of the Messiah, of the Christ, of Jesus and the Apostle Paul tells us of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. says this. Who, though Jesus was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death was when God the Son, Jesus, took on the form of a child, of a baby. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many people. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of crucifixion. And Jesus comes as a model of someone in submission to God the Father's will. Jesus says in John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. In his great love for us, Jesus humbled himself to the point of death. He bore the penalty that you and I deserved. He lived the life that we failed to live. He died the death that we ought to have died. And yet on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave. He conquers sin and death. He is victorious. And God the Father has exalted Jesus to the right hand of God. Jesus sits in glory and honor and power. He has a name that is above every other name. And one day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And in his name is the power to save. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So how do we have peace in a world with war, famine, political discord, conflict, tensions, disease, suffering, pain, loss? How do we rest in a world that feels determined to be as chaotic as possible? How do we fight for contentment when social media and marketing and a material culture tells us that the things that we are and the things that we already have are not enough? We place our hope in Jesus. We hope in the Lord, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The future rests in his hands. The past was determined exactly how he intended it, and the present is sustained by his very word. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Overland Church, hope in the Lord. When should you place your hope in the Lord? David says to do it from this time forth. That is, place your hope in the Lord today. From this time forth. David calls Israel not to delay. If you have not placed your hope in the Lord, if you've not repented of sin and trusted Christ for salvation, today can be a day of salvation for you. From this time forth and forevermore, hope in the Lord Jesus. O Lord. I want to leave you with a quote from an early church father, Augustine of Hippo. He said, "O oh Lord, our heart is restless until it rests in you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you would help us to find our rest in you. I ask that you would help us to place our hope in you, that we would trust in you, Christ, for salvation pray that we would not raise our eyes and lift our hearts i pray that we would not occupy ourselves with the concerns of the world things that are outside of our control we free our mind from those that we would calm and that we would quiet ourselves in your presence we would calm our souls that we would find rest in a restless world Help us to be content in you like a child with his mother, like David in your presence, Father. Help us to free ourselves from distraction in whatever way that looks like in our personal lives. Maybe it is reducing dependence on our phones. Maybe there are other things that are distracting us, that are numbing us to you and your presence and your word. Help us to be freed from those things. Help us to place our trust in you and in you alone from this time forth and forevermore. We ask this in your name, King Jesus. Amen. Would you all please stand as we sing a song of response?